giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today are Rob Meinhart and David Kloba of the Furious Collective, the company that acquired Formkeep from ThoughtBot. Dave, Rob, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chad, excited to be here. So we actually haven't talked much since you took over Formkeep. How has it been going? Well, we acquired Formkeep in October of 2017, so we're right around our one-year anniversary, and we've had a lot of fun working on the product and working on the company. We spent a little bit of time up front right after we acquired it, just spending time, honestly, getting to know the business and the customers and the marketplace. And more recently, we've been spending more time trying to advance it and grow it and, and take it to new places. That's great to hear. Tell us a little bit about the journey that took you to eventually acquiring Formkeep and how both of you met each other and decided to work together now. Dave and I have worked together for close to 20, maybe more than 20 years now, a long time. Yep. Uh, this is our third startup that we've done together. Um, our time together goes back to a company called Avant Go, which was founded in the late 90s which was one of the first mobile internet companies out there. We had the most dominant application installed on Palm Pilots, Windows CE, and BlackBerry devices at the time. So I think both Dave and I are proud of that work because in some ways it's a little bit of the predecessor of what we see on mobile phones today in the application space. And Avant Go is a really exciting company. Dave ran a big piece of the engineering group there and I ran marketing. Uh, and we grew that up to about 10 or 11 million users, if I remember correctly, yep. at, at that time, which was for then quite a bit. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Um, Dave and I got to know each other there. We were a lot younger, less gray hair. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and then uh, after that, Dave and I were on the founding team, co-founded a company called Case Networks, which was a systems management company that competed with Altiris and Landesk in the endpoint management space. And we grew that business big enough that Dell acquired it and grew it up to about ultimately with inside of Dell up to about 150 million in revenue. And in, in that business, I was CEO and Dave was VP of engineering. And, and then after I left, Dave continued on as a general manager inside of Dell. So uh, we had those two great experiences together. We really enjoyed all of the years we worked together. And, and when we kind of both got outside of Dell, we decided to start, of course, something new together. Yep. And we took on this project called Furious Collective. And that's a really exciting company. It's a venture production studio, which might be a new term to a lot of people. But what that means is, in layman's terms, it's a little bit like an incubator, but it's also a little bit different. A venture production studio uh, typically involves the founders building or buying companies based on their own idea set and their own capital resources. So. Every business that we build or buy, we, we like to own it ourselves and, and, and starts at a genesis with an idea that we've had. Another angle on our venture production studio at Furious Collective is that we're really focused on building companies or acquiring businesses that can generate cash flow quickly. Dave and I have been beneficiaries of venture capital-backed companies over the years and have raised a lot of money and taken companies public and things like that that you kind of see in the news. And for this time around, we decided, you know what, let's focus on controlling our own destiny a little bit better, using our own resources and controlling these companies a little bit better on our side. So it's a little bit of a new angle for us. Obviously, a lot of your listeners might be doing bootstrap companies where mm -hmm. they don't have access to outside capital. 
And uh, we're excited about that type of, of enterprise where we can build something that's profitable and self-sustaining over time. Yeah, so we had looked at a lot of different things. You know, we made a giant list of stuff that we wanted to start ourselves. I think it was like 200, you know, uh, ideas, business ideas and stuff that we thought would be interesting. And at the same time, we were looking around for opportunities that already existed. And when FormKeep came across the the table, uh, I was intrigued with the kind of simplicity of it, like simple things built well type of thing. And uh, we dug into it and we met you, Chad, and talked with the team and, and got excited about it. You know, we like the fact that there's a large market. There's a lot of people who have this kind of need. And also we look for kind of what we call regenerative markets uh, in the sense that like forms aren't going away, HTML is not going away. There's always going to be a need for this type of stuff. It was also interesting to us in that there's um, at this size of it, it's kind of a fragmented market. There's a lot of people that can put up this kind of solution, uh, a lot of players in the space. There's no one dominant player. So we thought there was opportunity for us to get in, be successful, and then kind of grow it. So it hit all the, the high marks for something. And it was also something that, that Rob and I could kind of grab and, and get uh, hands-on, elbows in, if you will, on it. And it was it was good enough size that there was something for us to play with, but not so big that we were going to need a giant team of people to kind of run and manage it. Mm-hmm. And that giant team of people seemed like an important thing, or not having one seemed like an important thing, because it's just the two of you, right? That's right. Yeah. And do you foresee it staying that way for a while, or do you have plans there. So we actually, the model for Furious Collective is for us to build uh, kind of autonomous little businesses inside of, of Furious. So mm-hmm. uh, in addition to FormKeep, uh, we run another uh, business called TeamSmith. We work with an individual, John Griffin, on that. And so he's the CEO of that business, and we work with him very closely on kind of the inset creation and, and sustaining mode uh, of that business. But that's kind of the model we're going for is like, we'd like to get FormKeep to the point where it's a little bit larger, and then we'll bring on someone to actually own and run that. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that, that we find and, and, and others obviously find when they're doing bootstrap is like wearing so many hats. Like you've got so much stuff to do during a day, you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. And so Rob and I, like we like to get in, work on something for about a year and then hand that off to somebody to keep running and then we'll go off and do the other stuff. Now mm-hmm. we're still involved with these businesses and kind of fractional time type of stuff, uh, but we found that you know we like to focus in on a year for about a year on something uh, and then move on to the next mm-hmm. thing. Are there any other shared services that you sort of leverage across the different products that you have? In terms of our employee count and kind of how we run things, we, we like to have a leader for each of our businesses. But we also really believe in the you know emergence, it's more than an emergence now, of the gig economy and the ability to bring in incredibly talented people on a contract basis to work on different projects. So we have people working on FormKeep and also on TeamSmith who aren't necessarily part of the full-time team, but they're sort of part of our full-time bench of contractors that we'll use on different projects. We also believe that there is an opportunity, Chad, as you pointed out, to centralize certain functions in the back end. Some of those are pretty obvious, like finance, where we have a single finance person working on all of our businesses. We think as we get bigger, you know, we have a goal of doing a, a new project each year as that portfolio gets bigger, we might look at doing things like having a small centralized engineering team that can roll and put emphasis on a particular product for a period of time then roll on to a totally different company. Similarly, on the marketing side, you could imagine, for example, a team that uh, might specialize in content marketing who could work on one project then work on another. I, I think that comes down to you know, when you when you get to a point that the contract bench that you're working is sort of effectively full time, 
that would probably be a, a smart time to start thinking about bringing some of those things back into a central office. So you mentioned when we were getting started that you sort of intentionally let things ride for a few months so that you could understand how things were working and everything. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we try to not, I guess, get the cart before the horse, if you mm-hmm. will. Like there's this there's this desire to get in and start changing stuff immediately. And we're intentionally trying to be more thoughtful uh, about what we do. And so in this particular case, when we got the business and really got a chance to really dig into it, it became clear that the business was running fine, that the product was doing what it needed to do. There wasn't anything on fire that right. we had to like immediately take care of. And, and mad props to you and the team for doing that. Like it was a really great hand up. I was super excited about about the work that and the team that you had uh, to, to help with the transition. But we could see there wasn't anything that we had to do. And so mm-hmm. that gave us some breathing room to take a take a step back and look at it. And it took us it, and honestly, it took us a, a little while to, to get our arms around the new tech and, and the new process and everything there. So so we felt really comfortable that it was OK to do that versus trying to make a bunch of changes right out of the gate. Yeah, I think, um, David, you had never used Rails before. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So how, how has that been? I've been actually super excited about Ruby and Rails and, and the whole thing. I, my previous experience was primarily PHP, a little bit of Symfony. So I, I knew I knew kind of like how these frameworks generally worked. But that was a, a new language for me. And it was fun. I, I've definitely enjoyed it. This is maybe for your tech listeners. But I was really excited last week or two uh, on the Heroku platform. They've been bugging me about being on the wrong stack. Like we're on like a slightly <laughs> older stack. And they're like, they're starting to send those mails like, hey, we're going to shut you down in a little while. So uh, I was actually a little concerned about how big of a deal that was going to be. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I dug into that, was able to get it upgraded and moved over uh, with very little downtime and pretty easily. So I was pretty, pretty pleased with that. And uh, I don't think that's I'm a smart guy. I think that's Rails and Ruby's doing the right stuff. Yeah. And Heroku is pretty good, too. I mean, being on Heroku is something that we recommend is just sort of our default because of the sort of savings that it has on the DevOps side for things like that, for other things like we are, we would definitely need a larger team of people who are DevOps people than Mm -hmm. or our clients would if we didn't use a platform like Heroku. Yeah, for this scale of business, for this kind of product technology, it's been great. And I, I've been very pleased with, mm-hmm. with what we've been able to do with it. And like I said, the rollouts have been been really good. And even some of these upgrades would seem like they were going to be a little bit more scary were, were, were great. And again, kudos to your team. I was digging around, running coverage reports and stuff I'm like, all right, well, let's let's see how much testing is actually going to be needed. And I'm like, oh, wow, wait, I've almost got 90, 95% coverage on the code base. That's pretty good. So I, I felt comfortable that moving to the different versions of the gems and stuff was going to be successful in that kind of thing. Cool. That's great to hear. Yeah. Have there been any other surprises uh, along the way as you've ramped up on FormKeep and and taken it over? Yeah. So I think there was probably some good, some bad, I guess. Like when we first talked about it, you know, when you go to buy a business, you have an opportunity to talk to the owners and they tell you it does this and it does that. And I kind of had the impression that it was going to be a lot more like, like mailing list type of stuff. Like people just like, you know, we're just capturing an email or that kind of stuff. And I was surprised once we got in and I could really stare at kind of the usage that the wide range of uses that people are, are using FormKeep for. Uh, there's definitely people that are just doing mailing lists. There's definitely people that are doing kind of contact form type of stuff, like, hey, mm-hmm. I've, I've got a problem and I want to need some help. But I was surprised to find people were actually taking orders basically online. Like there's a couple customers who have fairly expansive forms that are capturing uh, a ton of information and and then feed that into their back-end systems to process orders. That was kind of surprising to me. I, I think the other one was volume. Like I kind of expected it to be, you know, one a day to, you know, like a, a general like contact form. You're not kind of expecting to see a ton of traffic, but we've got customers 
where we're getting hundreds of submissions a day mm-hmm. because they're, it's, an, it's an active lead gen form. It's something on their main homepage. These are our top tier websites. And the amount of sustained traffic that I see coming in to FormKeep was pleasantly bigger than I thought. So that was that was surprising in a good way. On the negative side, the thing that was surprising to me was the amount of work that I had to do to deal with uh, what I would call bad actors, mm-hmm. people that are to do bad things. And that might be spear phishing attacks um, and, and that kind of stuff. And so we built some new systems to help us mitigate those things. Um, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, nobody will care about this, really. But it was interesting that uh, I will I, care. I well, I, it's interesting to me, I guess, like uh, we had done a bunch of work and, I, and I've, I've suppressed a ton of stuff. And so that I felt really good about that. And then I've got nephews that are starting college uh, or in college. And so, like that week that they started college, like a bunch of spear phishing attacks, like suddenly like started coming in against various schools. Uh, and they, hmm. they would spin up a, they would spin up a form, keep account, start an attack like that same moment. But then the, the stuff that I built would catch them and shut them down. It was just an interesting spike that I thought was was interesting, but but it's been interesting just to see the amount of spam that's there uh, and some of these other attacks and, and trying to find clever ways to kind of detect that and shut them down was was been kind of an interesting amount of uh, time I've spent on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think if you roll back the idea of doing an acquisition in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, Formkeep yep. was the first acquisition that we've done as as Furious Collective. Obviously, Dave and I have done acquisitions in the past, but as part of Furious, this was the first one. And I think when you're kind of doing your first thing like this, you, you kind of think about, well, gee, there could be some big surprises, like, well, maybe Chad was scamming us and there are no customers, or, you know, <laughs> right. uh, something really big or something really worrisome that could come out of it. I think that's the fear that everybody has doing a, an acquisition like this. And uh, I'm really happy to report there were really no meaningful surprises on that front. We feel like, you know, you guys did a really nice job of disclosing everything and giving us a, a fair view of what was going on, the, on in the business. So that's been great. We really appreciate that. No. So I think you added reCAPTCHA support, which is part of stopping spam, right? Yeah. What other improvements have you made? So right now, the the improvements have been kind of small backlog type of stuff. Like, again, you you guys gave us a a big list of of stuff. We had kind of a customer backlog and intercom about what people were asking for. And obviously, as as being a new Rails guy and a Ruby guy, I wanted to kind of cut my teeth on some more simpler stuff. So the recapture support was definitely something that people had been asking for and was an obvious thing to add. Um, So that's been put in there. Uh, As I mentioned, we've done a bunch of uh, other uh, lower level spam and, and bad actor detection and mitigation. Uh, techniques. Some of that was just in place before that, and then some of it came out of the GDPR stuff. And so GDPR caused us to do a, a couple things on security and a bunch of legal stuff. But we also added a, a retention policy at the support level. So right now, the uh, the spam stuff would always be cleaned up after 30 days. But now you can say, I actually want my submissions to be cleaned up after a period of time. And mostly customers who either have GDPR requirements or are using FormKeep as kind of a pass-through, where we're collecting it and they're feeding it into their backend systems. Really, as soon as it gets to their other backend systems, they don't really need it here on FormKeep. So the retention stuff was pretty good. This is another maybe surprising. We, we actually had an interesting amount of traffic from non-English speaking countries. And so we actually uh, localized the default thank you page to a number of different languages. Um, and so that that's there and, and, and people seem to like that. We also allow you to customize that a lot more. So previously, you either got a generic thank you page or you could redirect to somebody else's site. And now you can actually customize the message that's on that thank you page. So you can add, add kind of your own message that's more appropriate to, to whatever you're doing. Again, if you're doing an order, you want maybe want to say one thing. If you're doing a, a comment, that's something else. 
So those were interesting. We added some simple reporting. So there was always a you know Google-like search capability. You could kind of search any field. But we added two abilities, one to specifically to specify what field you wanted to search. So you could do a little more advanced searching that way. And then there's a new reports tab that lets you do that as well as show you a graph over the previous 30 days, uh, number of submissions, that kind of stuff. So just some basic graphing capabilities that people were asking for. We like that. And then I think the other one that we did, which was more of an internal thing, was the ability to kind of disable accounts. So, mm-hmm. Chow, when you when you, when you handed it off to us, the the product was very aggressive about kind of shutting customers off and would actually kind of delete content and that kind of stuff automatically for something as simple as, hey, your credit card failed. So we ended up building some tech in there to just disable that account and prompt people to, to put their uh, credit card stuff in. Um, so that's been kind of fun. So that's kind of on the tech stuff. Rob, I don't know if you want to talk more about some of the pricing and some of the more marketing stuff that we've done. Yeah, I can talk about that. One thing you miss is the shoebox IO project. When you handed this off, you you definitely said some of these integrations are very effective at driving new demand. And to be honest, we haven't done as much as we'd like there, but we did do a project with a company called Shoebox.io, which allows for better submission and storage of Im- images and things of that nature, yep. which has been, been a fun project to cut our teeth on. We want to do more integrations like the Zapier stuff that you already had in place as well. Recently, we implemented some new pricing changes you know, after a great deal of analysis to try to kind of figure out how to capture new customers more efficiently. So we introduced a, a new type of starter package into the mix and, and we'll continue to tinker with that as well. We're also leaning forward on kind of focusing on annual plans versus monthly plans. So we've seen some some good progress on that front. I think that all of the stuff we've been talking about and then the pricing plans are probably particularly interesting to the listeners because longtime listeners will have heard Ben Orenstein worked through on this show a lot of the things he was thinking about in terms of working through what pricing should be and all that stuff. And one of the big things that he did was temporarily, I, I think because you've put you know put them back, is remove those very entry level starter plans, the lower price plans. And there was lots of reasons for doing that. And so you've added them them back in. Yeah, so we looked a lot at this, and we did a number of uh, interviews and surveys of, of people who didn't who didn't purchase. Right? Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, well, what's the reason? Or people who canceled a subscription, like they were they were longtime customers, they had us for a while, and then for some reason they dropped. So yep. we really wanted to dig into that and try to understand what the challenges were there. And a lot of times it, it came down to price. There's a big demand for people who just have one forum on a blog or something like that who Mm -hmm. really just need a kind of lightweight solution. They're not expecting a ton of spam. They're not expecting a ton of submissions. And so we didn't bring back the old plans because the old plans were kind of fully featured, full functional type plans. The starter plan that we've introduced is a a fairly lightweight plan. It's got a limited number of submissions. It doesn't have any spam support, but it is at the price point that we think people are looking for for that kind of capabilities. And then we have a slight step up from there. So if you had a couple of forms and wanted some spam features, um, we we do have an offering that kind of bridges the the, the gap between that Mm -hmm. low end price and our our high end thing. The customers that are most happy with us are our design houses and web developers who are actually using it for more than just their one contact form. Mm -hmm. They're building out many things and that kind of stuff. I guess that was one of the other features we added was um, we handled a number of support requests where 
a design house or a contractor or a developer had had built something and had it under um, maintenance for a customer, but then that customer wanted to move on, didn't want to pay maintenance, but wanted to take over the contract. And so we built a, an ability to transfer a form between one account and another mm-hmm. um, without having to contact support. So as a design house, you can build out all your stuff and then you can build your, your clients directly, build it into your, your contract. But if they decide to take it offline or take it to somebody else, you can just say, well, send up another form, keep account, and then you guys can just move the form directly. Cool. So yeah, there's stuff like that that I think is, is interesting. And, and we just launched the pricing thing. And so we're definitely seeing some interest in there, but it's still early times. And, and like you said, like pricing is one of these challenges that it, you're always looking at. You're right. always reviewing what's going on and need to react to what's going on in the rest of the marketplace and your competitors and what your customers want. I think based on what we learned, the way you've rebuilt the entry level plan as a limited plan at a mm-hmm. lower price point makes a lot of sense because the thing we struggled with is if it was the same features, <laughs> people would always sign up for that. Right. And we couldn't get it right so that people would go to the, the better plan for them mm-hmm. or one that worked better for us. That was especially true when, when we had the free plans. Yeah. yeah. The, the free plan is, is definitely tricky. And Rob and I spent a lot of time talking about that. And we've done we've done free plans in the past. We know lots of other startups that have done free plans and they're, they're very challenging to get right. And it, it's kind of domain specific. There are there mm-hmm. are products and there are there are sales motions where free plans are absolutely what you want to do. But there are other ones where it's not as clear that there's actually an economic benefit to, to kind of doing that. In this particular space, there are a lot of people doing a lot of, of products in this space. And, and there's there's no lack of kind of free solutions. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make sure that we're providing kind of the best solution for the, the particular set of customers that we want to tackle and go after that, that appreciate and need the kind of solutions and features that we're providing. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We're, we're excited to get it off the ground. And definitely some people have asked some questions. And uh, I know we, we've got um, some early customers in already. So I'm excited to see how that plays out over the next month or two. Cool. So we talked a lot about the changes that you've made. Where do you see things going from here? One of the things that Dave mentioned earlier is that we have a desire to get FormKeep to a higher revenue run rate. And we have seen growth, especially recently with some of the changes that we've made. So we're excited to see that happening. But we're, we want to get it to a higher critical mass where we can put someone at the helm who can really focus full time on the project. And we can do that through organic growth and spending on marketing and making feature changes or whatnot. But we can also look at doing that through potentially combining FormKeep with another asset. And since we're kind of doing all of this under the umbrella of Furious Collective, we definitely have our eye out for potentially another forms-based company to acquire. Probably not something that's in the exact same domain space as FormKeep, but it could be. I mean, there are directly competitors out there who you could imagine combining with FormKeep to just get bigger critical mass so you could do smarter things in terms of aggregating customers and aggregating inbound leads. But we also think there are adjacencies in a number of areas where we could potentially look at an acquisition, for example, and there's a number of different strategies you can go after, but an example might be something that's more in the area of helping people build a form front end or taking it in another direction entirely. You could look at how do we enhance or build on features that make FormKeep feel more like a cloud database that people Mm -hmm. could access. So we have a few different potential strategies in mind, and we're actually just We've spent some time recently kind of segmenting the market and looking at the different players out there and who we might approach to see if we could add more critical mass to this market space. 
that doesn't mean, you know, for your listeners, we're going to shut down form cube combined with something else or anything like that. It right. just means kind of scraping more things under, think about it like a form conglomerate, if you will, mm-hmm. that could build a critical mass around that. So that that's one thing that we think is, is potentially pretty interesting. And let me add to that, I guess, like, I, I think I said earlier that there's kind of three buckets of forms that we see people building, you know, there's these very simple, like mailing list, like add me to your list type of email capture stuff, there's support things, and then there's what what we call kind of lead gen capture forms. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about each of those areas as, as, a, as a potential uh, thing to go deeper on. So you think about uh, mailing list management, right? Okay, well, in addition to just capturing it, what else can we do with that? Now, obviously, we can feed that over to existing systems, but maybe we can add some features that would allow right. you to just do some basic stuff there. Lead capture or lead gen stuff, being able to like build in some A-B testing or at least give you some additional stats, that kind of stuff. But there's a ton of features and functions there. We've been looking at, uh, it seems like one of the most common things that people are doing are kind of taking these forms and then feeding them directly into kind of a, a Google Sheet type of database so they can then do other processing. So Zapier is great and they've got tons of integrations, but there are a number of different hoops you have to go through to do stuff. So mm-hmm. we have been thinking about doing more direct integrations for specific things. So that'd be more like a one button, like push this button and just dump the data to my Google spreadsheet or push it directly to MailChimp or something like that, just to kind of reduce the the amount of, of knobs that you have to turn to do things. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still doing surveys and stuff for our customer base as to which of those are our most compelling for them. Uh, a lot of those make a lot of sense to me um, based on our history with the product and, and what we learned. So that's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. The one about the form builder makes a lot of sense. I would obviously, it sounds like you're doing the research to figure out whether that would actually work or not and be compelling to people and would open up the market, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That one's interesting. That one definitely gets us into the target zone of, of some bigger competitors. Like there are some large players in that space. And so we would want to make sure that we can add some value that people are going to find, you know, I, and, and I don't know if we can just, I mean, even at the, pr- just doing a price differentiation there, it would be difficult just because right. of the number of players. Yeah. But still back to the, like why we looked at, at FormKeep, it's a huge market. It's very fragmented. There's a lot of these players that are providing very specific things. And honestly, I, I'd, I'd love to hear more from your listeners and, and from our customer base about what specifically, what gaps that they see in the market. Like, what are they missing? Gosh, I wish this would be easier or this would be simpler. Well, yes, I can get that done, but it's like five jumps and, and this one always breaks. Like, like, if mm-hmm. you could just have it all in one thing, what are those things? And so um, that's still something that, like we said, we still need to do some research on to make a decision. Yeah. You know, we've learned a lot about how to run a business, even though Dave and I have both been part of a, one company went public, one that got, got acquired for a, a good outcome. This is a totally different kind of business. So we've learned a ton. And a lot of that's come from what I'll call a context shift. When you're a founder CEO of a venture backed business that's got $30 million on the balance sheet, you think differently about marketing, right? You're, you're basically driving marketing programs and sales programs to drive huge volumes for a particular product. And so you can narrow cast it around that. When you think about running something like FormKeep where you're trying to run it on a cash flow basis, you start thinking differently about, okay, well, if I'm gonna spend the money to drive a lead to the FormKeep website, that's money that's been spent, and if those don't convert, that's money lost directly. Mm-hmm. And, and you think about mm-hmm. it in that context, we've been thinking, okay, well, if a significant fraction of our leads that we've acquired end up walking away, either due to price or it wasn't quite the feature set they were looking for, how do we make sure we trap those? So if you think about 
a conglomerate seems almost nutty on like a small scale like this, but it's <laughs> right. basically like a trap. You know, how do you how do you have enough variety of products so that when you drive someone who's looking for something HTML forms related, mm -hmm. that we kind of have something in the area they were looking for? Right. right. Because it's really hard to bisect it down to just form backend. You know, people don't even yep. know that term. They're not necessarily clearly shopping for that. Right. They kind of know they need something in the form space, and it always means a little bit of something different to someone else. Right. The example that jumps right to my mind is, you know, we also had a previous product, Airbrake, acquired. And mm -hmm. the person who acquired that also acquired the, the next biggest competitor, Exceptional. So they were two very competing products owned by the same person and together they were capturing a significant portion of the market and so yeah. it might not be as extreme as that but that was definitely something that worked well for them um, and then they went on to sell that whole bundle to Rackspace so I understand it worked pretty well yeah yeah definitely definitely so you mentioned research and surveys, and, and is there a particular um, strategy or way that you think about talking to customers? I don't know, Rob, that we have a, any super secret sauce on that. Like it, we, we've run a bunch of surveys for specific things, like well, why did you leave or that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I tend to lean into the support stuff. Like like we had a customer who popped into support, said, hey, we're having some trouble with this out of the other thing. And like, I'm just not shy about saying, well, can we get on a call? Let me understand that better. And they were one of the larger customers and they were using the, the JSON API to pull some data out and they were struggling with kind of getting that data out in a way that made sense. And so I had a 30 minute call with them about exactly what they were doing, what they needed, and was able to, I think within a day, implement uh, a change to the JSON API that lets them say, you know, give me the data for a particular data range. Mm -hmm. So suddenly they could they could say, I, I know I got all the data from yesterday, now just give me the data from today, whereas before they were having to process the whole thing. So I think that, you know, just being open, I mean, some people, some people get nervous about talking to their customers and I would say, don't be like your customers generally love you and they're, they're giving you money and they will, they want the product to do what they want it to do. And like, if you can get on a call with them and, and get a better appreciation of what they're doing, I always learn something amazing out of that. We've done some other stuff at scale where we were trying to, to kind of, uh, Rob, I think you ran more of a survey of like, do you use it like this? I, I forget exactly how you did that, but there was definitely some other stuff we've done where it's more broader, where you're trying to just collate a bunch of information and, and get responses. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Chad, probably a lot of your listeners might listen to different podcasts about entrepreneurship and whatnot. I think there's always that common theme of don't be afraid to talk to your customers. And I think that's been a hallmark of how Dave and I run our businesses over the years. I mean, just being very not only customer centric, but not being afraid to pick up the phone or go visit a customer or talk to a customer in some way that might be a survey or something else. I would say that with FormKeep, it's been interesting because this is probably the lowest price point product Dave and I have worked on. Case products that we sold on the systems management side were about $30,000 average sale price. And Avant Go, even though we had a consumer product, our, most of our revenue came from an enterprise product that was in that twenty dollars to $30,000 price point range. So those customers tend to be more willing to have you come on a site visit or spend a half a day or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. These customers, you know, it's a small transaction to them. If they didn't like your product, they move on, they find something else. They're not really as personally vested in form keep as something like case. So that's been a little different. We've, we've run some surveys that, for example, automatically trigger when somebody unsubscribes or doesn't convert and these sorts of things. And we generally see a lot lower right. kind of uptake on responding to those types of surveys. 
And so even though I would say we do lean hard on trying to talk to customers when we can, and Dave's right, we've jumped on a number of calls and learned a lot of stuff. I would say that we've had to lean harder on discerning insights from the data that we have. Mm. And thankfully, you know, between the backend systems that we have and tools like Barometrics and Intercom and whatnot, we have ways to look at data. And then, of course, we can look at kind of the competitive landscape as well to see kind of what's going on there. So I would say it's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a blind spot more than I'd like to see in terms of the volume and quality of customer interaction that I'm used to. But I think that's, a, as I say, more of a price point. Right consideration well that, you that, could you could solve yeah. your uh, your growth question by increasing the price of form keep to thirty thousand dollars well you, we hadn't thought about <laughs> that but that's an interesting idea you only need one customer and you'll be all right. set. <laughs> well it's funny funny you bring it up I, I used to be on the board of a company i won't name them but they had grown organically for about 17 years hmm. and they had a fairly small number of customers but their main strategy for growth was each year that it was a recurring model, they would raise the price. <laughs> and so they, they couldn't add that many customers, but they got up to, I want to say it was like, got up to like $10,000 a seat. Oh, wow. And it, it kept going up there. And then as their product got more mature and whatnot, we, we, we made some pivots and actually introduced some lower price products. And now they're a public company. So things actually took off once they sort of figured out how to sell more versus raise price. Mm -hmm. But it's just interesting to see how people address the problem. I'll add one more thing to that, I guess, on the price thing, which is it's kind of a joke, but it kind of isn't a joke that we do occasionally get customers that come in that are asking about capturing more sensitive information. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's dentist office or something like that, where it's kind of HIPAA compliance type of thing. And they're asking if we have those kind of capabilities and, and we don't right now. And I looked into like what it would take to move to one of the one of those type of platforms. And, and it's fairly expensive. Right. right. And none of these people, like to Rob's point, were at a point where they were willing to engage with us in a very deep way about like, well, yeah, I might be willing to, to spend upwards of, you know, a thousand dollars to kind of make something like that happen. So there maybe there's a play there. Um, and if you definitely look at some of the, the larger form providers, like they definitely have payments and these other things, mm -hmm. these higher end systems. Um, so there might be a play there. But to find those particular customers with those specific needs is, right. is definitely a challenge. Well, the other thing too, Chad, maybe this is a little tongue in cheek joke as well. And someone can explain this to me. Like recently, if you ser search on Amazon for dental floss and then search like, you know, high to low price, mm -hmm. there's a dental floss. You can buy the same dental floss for 50 cents or $500. And I'm assuming <laughs> Assuming there must be people somewhere in the world who just always look for the highest price version of everything and click OK. Right. I guess so. I don't so know. So maybe we should offer a $500 we should offer just one. or $5,000 a month forms package. Sure. Uh, we'll, we'll Ultra gold platinum. We'll, we'll, theme, we'll theme the UI gold. It'll be great. Yeah. yeah. One of the nice things about FormCube, because the sensitive information came up previously, also just having an SLA came up previously. And because each form endpoint is specific to that customer, to that form, it's easily sharded, essentially, because you yep. could say, well, this form endpoint we have an SLA for, it is sensitive, it's on a different architecture. Yeah, no, definitely. I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, in, in my in my wild dreams, like, hey, we're going to do this starter pack. We're going to start getting a ton more customers. I'm going to have to figure out a way to shard people that are perhaps on a lower end plan from these other guys that are paying kind of the more premium stuff. And, and maybe there'd be value in that. Mm -hmm. I've done this previously at, at another company. But like um, the other thing you're asking about kind of my, my excitement with the tech and uh one of the other things I did last month was I was playing around with the, 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 the mainline code path. Like, you know, form comes in, form gets saved. Like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And this is for your developer guys. You guys know, like, 
you're building stuff and you add a little feature here and you add a little feature there and you, oh, well, you want to do this and you want, and suddenly your main code line path is making like 16 calls to the database and is like looking up all this garbage. And like at the end of the day, you're just trying to save a form. So I stared really hard at that, thinking about performance and thinking about some of the load that we might hit. And I was, I was thinking about, well, maybe I need to shard this or build another database or whatever. And then I just said, well, let me play with the code path. And um, I actually doubled the performance of just the mainline, like saving a form type of thing by removing some stuff and doing some caching and just kind of the hygiene stuff that you do by actually looking at what's going on. Oh, I don't need to do that. I definitely don't need to do that twice. And so I was really pleased that like, again, Rails let me refactor that pretty simply cool. and get the performance up higher. So now, now I'm like, ah, all right, that, even if we triple, like I'll, I'll be able to handle that load. It's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that also came about because we were, um, this is a sm- small diversion, but for the TeamSmith project, we actually used FormKeep to store some JSON data. So there was a, we used this other service and it was emitting a bunch of events that were happening and I needed to capture those and report on them. So like, oh, I'll just dump them into FormKeep. But what that meant was like every morning at like eight o'clock, like 50,000 events would like come pouring into the system and we're using a big service for that. And they're like, well, yeah, we got a lot of servers. So they would just like hammer us. Mm-hmm. So I had this really good load test where I like, oh, in real time, I'm seeing, I'm seeing spikes. And, um, once I rolled out this performance change, we were handling huge amounts of volume and like no spiking on the data on the database or on the server. So I was very pleased with that. Anyway, so it sounds like things overall have, especially in terms of the transition and and all that stuff, have gone well. What are some of the things that founders might do if they're thinking about selling their business or getting to the stage where something like this might happen? What are some things founders should do to like make that go better? We've actually looked at and made offers on a lot of different companies, and we've kind of seen seen the gamut on that front. I think if there are founders who have small or mid-sized businesses and they're seeking to find a new owner, I think that there's probably a triage that I would do if I was doing this myself. And the way I would personally triage that is to first again, pick up the phone and talk to the most likely strategic buyers. Somebody who, for example, if you have a company in the form space, you know, you might want to call a woo-foo or somebody like that and try to make direct contact with someone who's got deeper pockets in the space who might want to do some bigger play aggregation. You may not find that to be the case, and that's okay, but I think those are easy calls to make that might save you a commission on a sale. And then I think the next step is is to to look at some of these broker networks that are out there. I think that they're very effective at putting deals in front of people. And if your deal has potential where it kind of fits the profile of the buyer market, we've seen some pretty competitive bidding situations. Chad, I think with your deal in particular, we bid against a, at least one other party that we know of. And that drove the price up. And, and Dave and I made an offer on a separate business about six months ago where the price went pretty high pretty quickly in a bidding situation. I think that's pretty hard to create if you're penny wise and pound foolish and don't enlist a broker. So I think that that makes sense. And then, of course, obviously, just understanding and, and being credible in your data. Dave and I don't do really super hard diligence because we're obviously not dealing with big enough deals to warrant a team of five people digging through everything. That being said, it is pretty easy to tell if somebody's books are sort of solid. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen deals where they just didn't feel credible because the bookkeeping and the, the hygiene on the back end really wasn't there. And I think that drives value down versus in your situation, you know, you guys had a very clean, clean shop to look at. To be honest, I think that was one of the mistakes that we made. <laughs> Not that we had good books, but that 
we were spending time on Formkeep just to spend time on it. And we were putting that on the books. So when you started looking at it, it was like, you know, we were spending X number of hours and we were had an internal rate and we were putting that on the books of Formkeep. When in right. reality, that wasn't necessary to actually run the product. It was just yeah. time we were spending because it was downtime between clients or that kind of thing. So Formkeep could actually be more profitable than our book showed it being. Yeah, and, we, and we've been able to drive more profit in the business than when we originally acquired it through a number of different activities. Mm-hmm. I think there's clearly a best practice out there because I think Dave and I always chuckle a little bit when we see the financials of a lot of these companies and we've seen quite a few deals in the last year. Almost without fail, if you look back beyond 12 months, you can see that about 12 months from when they wanted to start selling it, that people start cutting costs and trying to trim things and make the books look stronger. So we kind of always chuckle at that because I do think that everyone's showing a leaner for the most part. I mean, you gave an example where it's not true, but I think for the most part, people show a leaner business in the trailing 12 months than the business actually is. Because even in our world, even though I say we eat more profit out of it, Dave and I are spending time on right. it and we're not putting our billing rate against it. So, you know, is it really profitable at that level? Maybe not because our billing rates are probably pretty high if we were charging consulting dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much do things like code quality and that kind of thing factor into your decision making process? So the challenge is that code quality is really hard to measure prior to the transaction. Mm-hmm. Like it's very unusual Unless you're doing a, a bigger transaction where you're actually going to get a, a really deep view at the stuff, uh, it's hard. I would say it's kind of a middling question. It, it, I end up looking more at the questions I can ask that I get good answers to are what are the stacks? Like, mm-hmm. what is it done? Right. Like, oh, it's it's Pearl and it, and it's still Pearl, you say. Interesting. OK, right. Or, oh, it's, it's Rails and it's a current version of Rails and, and, and this kind of stuff. It's on Heroku. It's on this. There was one company that we looked at where... It was a PHP shop and a backend shop. And, you know, I, I couldn't see the code, but you can ask some questions like, well, tell me about your rollout process. Like, how do you how do you roll out code changes? And he's like, oh, I just I just push the files. Mm. And, and then how do you manage like database changes? Oh, well, I just hand roll those changes. And I, I can I'll ask questions about their process. And that gives me a sense as to like, OK, yeah, you're, you're doing it by hand. It's a one guy shop. I totally get it. And that's fair. But that gives me an appreciation for what it is versus, yeah. oh, we've got a deploy script and it does this right or we're using the standard migration scripts to do X, Y, or Z. That's more tonal than anything else. But building on that, I guess, we definitely kind of try to classify a deal as to to kind of a very technical term here, how hairy the deal is, (laughs) right? Um, Does it have any fuzz on it? And sometimes that's technical. Like we've talked to we we talked to a couple of businesses where like yeah we're selling this piece of the business but we're keeping this other piece and it's like okay well how is the tech part oh well they're very intermingled but you're right. gonna have access to this and, and but not access to other stuff and that's hairy that scares you right so having a clean separation a clean handoff you'll talk to people especially founders of entrepreneur type guys they might have three or four different businesses. And you start talking to them like, well, yeah, it's all on kind of one one instance of Heroku or it's all in one GitHub repo. It's all in one. So how are you going to pull that apart? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's hairy, right? Not that it can't be done, not that not that it's not solvable, but, but it does add, add some concern to the deal when we start thinking about it. And where it gets to a point where as we're looking at, when we talk about expense, we're like, well, it's expensive to buy dollar-wise, but it could be expensive to unwind and unwrap. And Mm -hmm. so the easier it is to say like, oh, we're just going to hand you this account or we're just going to hand you this code base and it's all separate and all ready to go. That's more helpful to us. Mm -hmm. So this year we sold both FormKeep and Hound. And one of the things that we 
learned from that process that I'll add is we've started setting up separate credit cards and everything, like just making sure that it's as simple as possible to, that nothing is coupled, even credit card processing and, and all that right. stuff on each of our individual products that we have, um, yeah. just to make it even easier to transfer. Because you never know what will happen. Even if you don't plan on selling it, it's still just good to have it clean in retrospect and have things completely separate. Yeah. And, and, and again, just to be clear with everybody, like it's best practice and in its best effort as well. Like, Chad, I'm pretty sure like even six months ago, I had to work with your accounting person because there was some bill that was still like there was some logging thing that was still being charged. You guys that hadn't gotten transferred over. So mm -hmm. you're going to do your best at it and you just want most of it to happen and just know that there's some cleanup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'd add to you on the around the original question around kind of driving the most value for your business. If you're an entrepreneur out there and you have something you want to sell, you know, Dave and I, we've run companies, we've been in venture capital, we've done acquisitions, we've down done this. And I, I think there's, it's kind of like you got to be great at something. And I think there's three vectors for that. You either got to be growing fast, generating a lot of cash, or you have to have a lot of strategic value for somebody. Hmm. And so if you think about which one of those you're likely to fulfill on, I think it's smarter to drive one of those vectors hard than to kind of be middling in all of them. Mm -hmm. For example, if you have kind of a mediocre growth business, you're not generating much cash, you have a lot of churn, you're probably going to be selling your business at like 0.5 to 1 times revenue mm -hmm. versus if you can tell a high growth story or a high profit story, you could be anywhere in the 3 to 10 times revenue. In that extreme numbers, you could mm -hmm. be at 20, 50 times revenue. But if you can really show something appealing to the buyer that's sort of an outlier relative to other things they're seeing. I think that's what drives a lot of value for people. Mm -hmm. And the, for these subscale software businesses, and I'll, I'll define subscale as something that's under a couple million in revenue, yeah. I think there's a ton of relatively more financial buyers out there who mm -hmm. are just wanting to own businesses. And so that profit vector is, is an important way to make your asset liquid right? Otherwise, it's a very illiquid asset that you can't trade on and generate cash from. But if, if you have that cash profitability, like someone who's not even really doesn't even care that much about the business you're in might be a pr prospective buyer. Mm -hmm. I'll add one other thing to it, which is kind of a high level comment to your original question, which is that the thing that gets Rob and I frustrated is when we go spend a bunch of time talking with somebody who expressed an interest in, in selling, and then when brass tacks come down and like offers on the table, they don't actually want to sell. Like I think it's really important for an entrepreneur who's thinking about selling to really understand what they're selling, why they're selling, and what their kind of price point is, and to be clear about that upfront. Mm -hmm. We've probably failed on, on the other side of that where we've pursued a deal too long. Like we look at it, we put it what we feel is a strong offer on the table, and then this person is finding any which way to say no. Right. And, it, and, it, and it's clear to us that they don't really want to sell. They think they want to sell, but mm -hmm. but there's like these emotional are the, attachment. There's an yeah. emotional attachment in there that that people really have challenged. So what we like about the broker stuff is they've already like once you're at a broker, you're already like pulled the trigger on it. But right. but we we meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of folks who aren't sure. And we've even gone as far as leading with price, like in the first meeting saying, right. here's what we would pay. Right. We haven't even done our homework yet, but here's what we would pay. Theoretically, would you do you want to continue the discussion? And unfortunately, we found even in those situations, people said, oh, yeah, that seems attractive. And then you go through all this process and it's like, oh, now they don't really want to sell at that price. So, mm -hmm. it's so you want you want to think a little bit about the other as an entrepreneur. You want to think about the other side as well. They've got limited time and we're happy and other people are happy to spend time talking with you, but also realize that at the end of the day, they're trying to close a deal.
Mm-hmm. So that that's just kind of a high level thing that, that we've run into as we're talking with entrepreneurs about their different businesses. Yeah. Well, Furious Collective, you said you're going to do one a year. Yep. You've done two over the time. Yep. So you're probably looking for your next thing. You said that there's opportunities to get something that works well with FormKeep as well. So, you know, if people have something in mind or want to talk to you more about that, how best can they get in touch with you? We'd love for people to reach out to us and have discussions. Are we okay saying giving our private emails on the air yeah. here? I, think, yeah, I yeah. think we are. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could send an email to rob at furiouscollective.com and we'll always respond to you. And, and we're excited to see new opportunities. We see several a week, honestly, things coming through. And, and we always try to respond and, and give good, tangible feedback pretty quickly. Definitely. Is there anything else that listeners might get in touch with if they're interested? Maybe feedback on FormKeep itself? Yeah, if they've got form keep stuff, I definitely want to hear about them. You can reach me at Dave at, at FuriousCollective.com. And we are putting our roadmap together for 2019 right now. And I definitely would love to hear where they like to see form keep go or what it's missing. Even if it's something really small, I, I, you know, I love those little projects as well. Um, we're doing rollouts pretty much every week at this point. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. I know that it should be interesting to a lot of listeners because they followed along in the development and growth of form keep originally. Great. Yeah, Yeah. this has been good. We've been really excited to be on with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I wish you all the best. Who knows? Maybe ThoughtBot will create something again in the future, and then Furious Collective will get it again. Look, look forward to it. We looked at we looked at Hound a little bit. We almost took a bit, took a run at Hound, but yeah, definitely. We probably would have. We had a little more time on our hands at yeah, that yeah. point in time. Yeah. But yeah, if you have something else, send it our way, Chad. Okay. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm, and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.